I'm here in the offices of Black Lives Matter Cleveland with Latanya Goldsby and Kareem Henton, president and vice president, respectively. And I've been covering BLM Cleveland pretty much since I began my journalism career. My very first story was exposing a local organizer who was not credible, to put it mildly. <laughs> and I didn't want to leave the reader with just anger and frustration. Uh, I wanted to point them towards uh, uh, credible organizers. And at the time, surveying what, you know, what was going on uh, in the summer, BLM Cleveland, just from afar, watching what you, how you expressed yourselves on Facebook and the types of events you were showing up for, mm -hmm. uh, I found you credible just on that level and reached out and made you part of that story. And so since then, I, I continue to cover, cover closely, like when you, you're attending rallies, your 4th of July rally. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was about a month later that Kareem approached me about producing a video to help spread the word about the tragic killing of Luke Stewart in Euclid. And this was at the request of the Stewart family. And so that spiraled into the short form documentary series, State of Injustice, which took on the, the ambitious task of, of looking at the over-policing and abuse black residents have endured all over Euclid. And you can watch that at stateofinjustice.com. And the director of the series, Roger Glenn Hill, and I, er, very early on when we realized we wanted to make this more than just a little standalone report, um, that it, it was really appropriate to give BLM Cleveland uh, executive producer credit. And that's not because you, you guys didn't contribute financially, but you set the project in motion. Mm -hmm. And then when we successfully crowdfunded it, it seemed appropriate that like we were going to kick 10% of the money back to BLM Cleveland. So, um, so since I've started doing press appearances to promote the documentary or just been out there in like the Twittersphere and online, I've occasionally encountered skepticism towards BLM. You know, people just reflexively hear that. And it's usually by those who have issues with how the BLM Global Network has conducted itself and the criticisms that they've faced. So all of this really just got me thinking that it would be great to sit down, just record an interview with you guys so that I can help people see what I have seen over the last year coming in and out of mm -hmm. this office. And, you know, every time we've, I've come in here for a meeting to talk about the documentary or, uh, you know, even this, setting up for this, we stall, it took about an extra two hours, or not two hours, you know, I had to set up, but then, <laughs> there, you know, we had to delay right. things because what are you guys doing? You're taking calls from people navigating the bail system. Mm -hmm. uh, you're figuring out how to get money to victims' families. Yes. You are uh, working with other organizers, planning actions, strategizing figuring out where the poli the political pressure points are. So, with all that prefaced, I just wanted to get into it with you guys, and why don't you take over here and just tell me the story of how BLM Cleveland started, how you came to this fight, and what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, that's a, that's a long story, right? <laughs> yeah. So, for, for me, it, it was personal. Um, my 12-year-old cousin, Tamir Rice, was killed by Cleveland police um, in 2014. Um, and, you know, I had seen police brutality and what it looks like prior to, so I knew it existed. But to have it hit home, to hit our, our doorsteps, it was, like, um, like, unbelievable. I just couldn't phantom how a 12-year-old kid could be shot down in the park within a second of police arriving to the scene. Um, but it also motivated me to get off the couch and do something um, to organize the community in a response to what we saw, which was inadequate policing. Literally activated you. Uh, right? Literally, it, it did. It activated me. And here we are six years later, um, and we've done a lot to um, build the reputation of Black Lives Matter Cleveland. We've helped in so many ways with um, the issues that we see within our community. Well, <clears throat> so, you know, for me, I mean, you know, I was more so uh, that person that, you know, also just was 
activated or motivated to get off of the couch in light of what happened to Mir and in light of what happened to uh, Timothy Russell and Melissa mm-hmm. Williams, the 137 shots incident, where the city sponsored uh, a disingenuous type of uh, community engagement meeting mm-hmm. to gather the feelings of residents and to try to take those uh, and, and actually um, mend fences and mm-hmm. to come out with come up with solutions. And I said disingenuous because as a result of that, nothing came of it other than others trying to duplicate that in order to just put out a fire, to have meetings around the city, just to make folks, you know, feel like, hey, we're listening, but nothing ever comes out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's a tactic that we see still being used today. Um, but I, it, it prompted me to come out and say some things. Um, and I just felt that I was a party of one and I was not going to be effective as much as I would like to be. And so I reached out to um, mutual friends of ours that you know were a part of the movement for black lives that were a part of the movement and they put us together and uh you know myself latanya ryan brown we you know that was it we were inseparable mm-hmm. and uh you know with the help of our very good friend uh l hearns and you know it really was was on and popping ever since then and you know we just found ourselves addressing those things, but we also found ourselves getting hit with that same question. Well, what about the things that happen within our community at the hands of people within our own community? And that's what made us, you know, really start to really take a deep dive into what's mm-hmm. going on in front of us. And that's right. when we started to uh, go into policies. Mm-hmm. So not just policies evolved around policing, but policies that involved um, the condition, that per- perpetuated the condition, right. the causative factors that makes a person have these uh, encounters with the criminal justice system, that makes a person have these encounters with law enforcement. So, you know, so we're talking about everything from that initial 911 phone call that someone could be giving all the way to that judge. And so we find ourselves now immersed in every aspect of this. And heck, I'd even take it even more than or even closer to the beginnings uh, or even further from what I stated as a beginning as far as that 911 phone call but also just dealing with our youth mm-hmm. so that perhaps we can do something preemptive where they'll, they'll, they won't have to worry about that 911 phone call because they'll be insulated or protected from that. So you're, you're brought together, uh, the two of you and Ryan, and is there a reason that you felt that like there needed to be a new organization, that, that there was a vacuum that was filled? Did you see like that for the reasons you were talking about is there might be advocates against police brutality and abuse, but there will often be an equivocation that attached to that is a certain level of victim blaming, whether it's blaming the black community. That I would say that I mean, totally agree what you have to look at. it sort of like how we look at politics mm-hmm. where. Any, the condition that you find yourself in, that happened under someone's watch. And so the people whose watch this happened under, you bear some responsibility. Absolutely. And so the same thing applies for advocates and advocacy groups. Um, not all, but those that are in the positions that have larger platforms, that have much more uh, power, connections, mm-hmm. networking, have a seat at various tables, have a larger sphere of influence. Those organizations failed our community at large. And so there was a necessary void there. And over the years, what we have been doing over here at BLM Cleveland as is just genuinely, you know, with a pure, pure intentions and a pure mindset, 
going into this work trying to really make change, trying to really help folks. And what that has gotten us is ultimately what we didn't even really understand that we were shooting for. And that was we have become an alternative to those folks who have always been there but have really not been servicing the community's best mm-hmm. interests as they should have been. So now we're getting the, the the calls, the pleas for help. We're getting the invitations to contribute, you know, policy ideas. I mean, we've gone as far as, I mean, imagine that BLM Cleveland gets, uh, gets an invite to contribute to one of our entering suburbs to their collective bargaining agreement. We served right. as consultants for that city mm-hmm. in their collective bargaining agreement. And so that's something traditionally you would find with other more well-known or other more long-standing right. groups. And now we got that. And, you know, that's a feather in our cap, not for bragging rights, but just because it just puts the wind in your sails, letting you know that you're doing good work and it's mm-hmm. being recognized and we're able to continue that and not ignore the community that others have been ignoring or not servicing properly well there's certainly you know a a necessary thing to making change is building power Mm -hmm. and seeing that making those accomplishments and then it's always comes down to how are you wielding it um so that evolution can you talk about um early on so in in doing research for state of injustice you know that's just again another example of where blm's credibility deepened for me because then i go and i see 2017 mm-hmm. y'all are showing up mm-hmm. at the city council meetings organizing people to protest um is that a lot of what the early work was was organizing protests and reactive or proactive measures and has it evolved to like now where you're saying like do you see different pressure points than you did when you were beginning I think I think we always knew where the pressure points were Um, and I think you know referring back to Tamir's case um, when we organized around the election of our county prosecutor it showed us then that, you know, we as the people had the power to change the course of direction that we were seeing. And we have to utilize that power through the the avenues that's been given to us. And that was at that time it was voting. And, you know, we galvanized the community, work with other organizations to do voter turnout, to get the community aware of what was at stake. Um, and we got rid of him. And we knew then that, you know, we had the power to, um, I, I don't want to say sway, but we definitely had the power to make an influence, um, yielding the power of the community. Absolutely. I, I would just say, just so you can have a better understanding of the geography or like the layout here, um, we're living in a very defeated city. Um, people of limited means, people like, you know, a poor city that has gotten a a huge amount of revenue by entangling the poor within the criminal justice system. So there's going to be this reluctance for people to show up at events where they might get arrested because they already have warrants. Um, They know that they can get pulled over leaving from a particular rally or action. And so there is that reluctance. So sometimes you have to couple that approach of you know, a, 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 a protest, a direct action with doing the things, you know, being a part of the electoral process and actually uh, having, you know, campaigns where we've helped uh, certain people to become unelected. You know, we, we had to do that because, you know, we've already, we've seen enough times and we see it enough times here where, you know, Folks show up to protest, but there's no or else. You know what I mean? And you have to have an or else. Otherwise, your protest just becomes a, a, a show, a song and dance, but with no repercussions and with no repercussions, who's going to take you seriously? Can you tell me about some of the families you've shown up for that don't get talked about 
outside of Cleveland? Yeah, so, like, I don't even know where to start. I would, right, I would, <laughs> to I mean, start? It's easier to uh, say who gets attention. Right. Like, Tamir, Tanisha, yes. Timothy, and Melissa are the only ones we believe that folks really know about. Yeah. And then the rest of them, they don't know about. Mm-hmm. Like, even with Desmond Franklin, you know. Desmond. it was. It took a while for people to be like, you know, this was an off-duty police officer. There has to be some form of what accountability. What was the story of Desmond Franklin, for those who don't know? Yeah, so um, Desmond Franklin um, was murdered by a Cleveland police, an off-duty Cleveland police officer, in April of 2020. Jose Garcia. Jose Garcia, yes. Um, there was well, supposed to have been... Bad host. ...some form of um, alleged... Uh, altercation or verbal altercation between him and, and the off-duty officer. Now, mind you, this officer was not in uniform. He was not in a marked vehicle, so they didn't know if he was Jim, Joe, or Adam from off the street. Um, there was no identification that this was a police officer. And from the dialogue that they had, um, I don't believe that they even knew. Um, but you know, he allegedly said some some racist slurs to him. They responded back. Um, he left the scene and then came back. And ultimately, Desmond Franklin was shot in the head and killed. He shot six times in the vehicle. Um, there were passengers in the car. He wasn't concerned about pedestrians on the street. He was out to kill him, and that's what he did. Um, families like Vincent Belmonte, um, who is from East Cleveland, who was murdered by a problematic, to say the a least, very problematic police officer um, who has a history of misconduct. Um, who is, is he, is he, has he been fired? Is he still on the force? I think he's, he's still, still there. on the force. I think they he's still on the force. He's, they're keeping him off the street. And if anyone really wants a deep dive into the killing of Vincent Belmonte, that's the most recent piece I put out. Um, mm -hmm. And what I really just did was walk you through, here's the physical evidence. And what it really comes down to is like, are we gonna give Larry McDonald the mm -hmm. benefit of the doubt? Because that's what it all hinges upon. And if you look at his record, and more importantly, the record of the entire East Cleveland Police Department, mm -hmm. they don't deserve the benefit mm -hmm. of the doubt at all. Right. And the, I think Kareem, you know, I have a clip of Kareem make, saying it best, like he was shot in the back, in the back of the head. How was he a threat? How was he threatening a police officer mm -hmm. if he was shot in the back? Which is probably too often the case, you know, with a lot of these shootings that we're seeing. Um, but it, it, you know, we can't leave out. So there are there are some uh, family me members of victims of uh, police murders mm -hmm. that we work directly with, like. Uh, the mother of Angelo Miller, mm -hmm. Alicia Kirkman is his mother. And, you know, you don't hear anything about him. A lot of folks aren't aware of Angelo Miller. A lot of folks aren't aware of Brenda Bickerstaff's brother, Greg Bickerstaff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, Brandon Jones. I mean, yes. you know, the, the, it just Thomas goes, Brandon McLeod. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So like, it just goes on and on. And that's what we're here for, to amplify, you know, these instances and amplify the, uh, the voices of the families. Um, but they don't always get amplified. Uh, sometimes it's just not the, the way that the family wants to go. And because these things can be very traumatic, very traumatizing, re-traumatizing for the family, we have to honor that. Though it is an issue that shapes and affects us all, and because and it, is, but the fact still remains that we want we don't want to re-victimize this fam these mm -hmm. families if they do not want this direct help from us. Right. Where we're because part of our tool is by helping to put this out into the media to bring attention to it. If this re-traumatizes the, mm -hmm. them. We don't want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that regardless of if we are amplifying what happened to that victim and their family, the fact remains is that law enforcement, they're going to steady keep churning up victims. So 
you're always going to be able to focus attention on some of these same officers and these same police departments. So, you know, it, so the issue is still going to be an issue that we have to fight and it's and they're always going to give us sound examples of why we need to fight against them. What are the real cultural and systemic issues you see with the Cleveland police? Uh, you both attended the yesterday the Cleveland Police Commission um, held a presentation about one the past 100 years of police reform in Cleveland and it was really astounding that out of the gate the fact they led with uh, that I, I thought was shocking and they said it in such a subtle little way matter-of-factly was that crime has historically pretty much always just been there no matter how many police we have um, but it's we really are dealing with problems with like a systemically um, bad culture mm -hmm. in the police department can you talk about that absolutely so and that's what I realized too um, hearing that information from that report is that this has been historic like this is a pattern of practice that they have shown for the past 100 years um, and the need or the call or demand for reform was present even back then. Some of the same things that we have been advocating for for the past six years of our existence were brought up in that conversation a hundred years ago. So for me, it seems like there's been no progress. I'm like, we're still stuck in that in that pattern of, of well, reform that has never really truly materialized, um, which is why we've been working so hard with these families to get the results that they need. Well, I think what that presentation really crystallized was how the, the maxim that if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it, mm -hmm. because they had a slide about, here's all the things they keep trotting out and saying, we'll do this, you know, and here's what always happens. And it was just, yeah, like you said, this rolling cycle. Mm -hmm. And that's what I find it, it can be really missing from a lot of, you know, I don't know from like the average voters understanding whether or not the press is doing a good enough job of letting people know how much systemic problems have never really been uprooted. Right. I mean, it's a whack-a-mole thing with corruption here or there or the these sort of fig leaf policies. Mm -hmm but we're not getting to the root of things. Uh, in the way that um, I see, I, I believe issue 24 is bringing to light with, with how um, the elected powers that be are really pushing against it. Mm -hmm. And um, I understand BLM Cleveland, you are nonpartisan and you can't weigh in on, on things like that. I don't know to what degree you can talk about how, what you'd hope to see from something like issue four if it passes or so let me let, let's say this. So um, the first thing is that just like someone who's suffering from addiction, you have to first admit that you have a problem um, until you have the Cleveland and they, they covered this in the history. Nowhere did you find where they admitted that they had a problem. Mm -hmm. But until you find uh, that that come to Jesus moment where you're like, look, I got a problem. I've got some culpability in this. I've got to fix myself. Then you're never going to really be able to get fixed. You have to first admit that you have a problem. And that's something that in the long history of the Cleveland of Division of Police that they have not done. So, you know, that denial has continued through all this time and as a and you see that the same problems keep recurring the same tactics used to try to thwart any real change any substantive change has you know those same methods have continued mm -hmm. and so the difference now and then is that in spite of a very powerful and very uh, influential and successful uh, police union and police lobby, you have some citizens who have been able 
to get the help of legal professionals, to get the input of involved or impacted individuals, to contribute and create policy legislation that can be used that's going to help change police culture, is going to actually help uh, law enforcement officers who want to try to do a decent job and not all of the other things that come with, you know, with the traditional aspects of policing, the bad, you know, the very, very bad parts, um, the toxic aspects of the culture, you know, those officers are going to find that they have uh, a support. And so by having such a thing um, that citizens have been able to put forth, I think that there's going to be some, uh, if that goes through, I think there are going to be some changes that uh, some folks, that uh, folks would really be able to see, you know, and benefit from. But it's just going to be a big change from uh, from before where this time, you know, it's something that's going to become a matter of law, not a matter of the government coming in and saying, hey, you need to be doing this. And then they leave and mm -hmm. the division of police goes right back right to back. their normal practices. And that's what we saw, like, even in that report, like the Department of Justice coming in and, and doing investigations and they continually going right back to the same pattern of practice once the consent decree is over with. Um, you know, and that's the fear that a lot of us and most of the family members and residents have now is that once this consent decree ends, that they're going to go right back to doing the same things that they've done before. Because it's shown within a hundred years of the attempts of police reform that they've done that. Um, and that's what, you know, the families want to see that this ends here, you know, that they have actually devised a plan that will stop those failed attempts and actually create a substantive structure for them. Now, I, I had to be in and out of the presentation, but do you recall if at any point we've tried what's being proposed by Issue 24? They mentioned... So there was quite a few things in there that um, were reflected, suggested, were suggested or recommended. Existed. Yeah, but never implemented. The city never went with those recommendations. That's a big thing. And the charter amendment came up, you know, oversight came up, civilian oversight came up, but none of those things were never implemented. Investigations into the causative factors yes. that exist within our communities, yeah, and you know, and 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 tr and to have um, a cultural understanding of the groups that they are policing. Mm -hmm. All those things were in there, and it's crazy, but all those things were just cast to the wayside, you know, in the end. And so, like, so by having what in place, what uh, folks are trying to do, it's it's really just a safeguard to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. So that that hundred plus years of no change, you know, can't continue. So, like, right. you know, it's going to stop at a hundred, so to speak, you know. And there's a real pattern that I'm seeing from the op the opponents of Issue 24, who, are, let's face it, are the police, the unions, their apologists. And um, with, with some of their talking points, they're really revealing the necessity of Issue 24, in, in my estimation. For instance, when they say, if you pass something like this with civilian meddling, you know, with civilian control and oversight, <laughs> then officers are going to quit en masse. And every non-police officer person I've brought this up to, you know, someone who's just not reflexively pro-police, right. can see that that's probably a good thing, that anyone, any officer who doesn't believe that they are beholden, that they are answerable to the people they're supposed to serve and protect, mm -hmm. um, they shouldn't be in, they shouldn't be in, wearing the uniform. Right. and. Um, the, that is a cultural thing in police mm -hmm. that I think has to change. And that, that talking point signifies that, yeah, they want to hang on to that culture where it's like, 
you don't understand. We're behind the blue line, okay? We have to police our own. That's because that's what it feels like their argument really boils down yeah, to. Show me. It's hard being a cop, and you won't, people won't understand, and that's why we can't let you see. It has to be the safety director who can is more, you know, one person mm -hmm. we, can, we can always sell our story to. Show me anywhere where law enforcement quit in mass. You understand what I'm saying? So now you can think about a recent, kind of recent incident where you had a number of officers quit because uh, two officers were being prosecuted and they were upset that these officers, and I think it might have been in Texas, good old state of Texas. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, to see an entire department quit, you yeah. haven't. You haven't. You're not going to see that. Now, I've seen them get fired, like in Camden. But here's the thing. These officers are just like you. They're just like you. They're just like me. They got mortgages. They've got car payments to make. Mm -hmm. They've got kids in school. You think they're just going to up and quit a job? And it's going to be real hard for them to do a lateral transfer to another department that's close by because a lot of these suburbs these inner ring and some of the outer ring suburbs around Cleveland, they don't want Cleveland cops. Mm -hmm. They know they're problematic. Absolutely. So where are these cops going to go? That means they're going to have to go all the way out to places like Ashtabula to work. So imagine that commute all the way from the far west side of Cleveland around Cam's Corner, having to go all the way out to commute to Ashtabula to work. They don't want to do that. And, or, you know, or like Loman. He had to go all the way down to Bel Air to find a job. And even, you know, before... Tim, this is Timothy Loman, Tamir Rice's killer. Correct. Yes. So, like, and, and, and then in the end, they wound up not employing him because they didn't want that smoke. But the, my point is just that they're not just going to walk away from a job. There's it's certainly not how the, the bluff aspect. And, but there's also the flip side of this, which I've now put, you know, I've had confirmed uh, by an ex-Cleveland police officer who uh, I had a discussion with last night. She, uh, I, I said to her, now, also, if we, Cleveland shows they're taking real steps to fix this department, to make sure that there's no place to hide for corruption, abuse, racism, or at least it's harder. Mm -hmm. uh, won't that signal to decent people who d would not have considered working in Cleveland? Not to mention that there are officers in the police department, they might, they might hate what they see around them, but how do they speak up without losing their job, possibly losing their life, or at least feeling, feeling like threatened? Um, you need, we need, if there's going to be decent people in police, like, like we're told, oh, it's oh, a few bad apples. It's like, I feel like the good apples, if they are in there, they're trapped mm -hmm. or they're not, they're not even going for those jobs. So you're, to me, that's the other side of it. It's like officers leaving good and also might attract officers who had never considered going back or who left. Cause I know them too. I know officers who are usually of color. And they can see a ceiling, and they can see the good old boys talking about what's going on. Latanya, you got to take a call, and yes, we're I not going to hold that I'll against you. Right I'm sorry. Well, you know I like to talk anyway. So. Go ahead, Kareem. So, right, so Go get, get her out of here. So, <laughs> so but no, um, no. I mean, it, there, there, there are just so many layers to this. So, I mean, right? They they threaten, but actually that's going to make sure you have a better quality of officer, but you're going to retrain, retain some of the other officers who were likely on the brink of quitting or transferring out. Um, it's actually going to be great for recruiting because, you know, the example that I've been finding myself give the past couple of weeks of folk, to folks is sort of like when you're moving, when you're uh, house hunting and you go to a neighborhood that you're thinking of moving into, you know, you don't go and just ask anybody on the streets that you're uh, contemplating moving on uh, how things are. You go and you speak to the people that you most identify with. So that means that you're going to ask, for example, someone like if you have children, you're going to ask someone who has children, how are the schools? You're going to ask them, how's the neighborhood? 
how's the traffic here? Because a person who doesn't have kids, they don't, they're not going to tell you much about the schools. They're not going to take notice about how fast the traffic is up and down that street. Same thing applies to that officer uh, or that person who's thinking of working in the Cleveland Division of Police. They're going to go to the individuals they identify with. So if it's a woman, she wants to know how promotions are there for women. Do women have a glass ceiling? You know, um, are women targeted? Is how what is harassment like there? Um, do they have any kind of recourse there to try to, um, with regards to harassment or discrimination? These are the things that women are going to ask. Same thing for persons of color when they're coming in. So these are the people they're going to ask. And so when they ask these people, if you have a police department that has not been doing right by women and people of color, what do you think they're telling them? But when they when you start to do things, put things in place that ensure that there's equitably and there's equity, ugh, equity in discipline, that there is a um, that there is legal recourse, that there is administrative recourse for them uh, with regards to issues and complaints. They're going to speak highly of their workplace and you're going to be able to bring folks in. That's where they're wrong is that it's not going to it's not going to keep people from coming in. It's going to bring people in and it's going to bring a better quality of people in. Anybody who's going to leave because of this, it's who you want gone anyway. Um, and I think it's also important, like you said, getting back to policies and this and that. There's there's many levels to get through and. Mm -hmm. Something like issue 24, something like making sure police are actually held accountable more often. Um, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take um, dealing with, with the entity that police unions are, which are very unique from normal unions. I'm very supportive of unions, but the way that police unions go about supporting their members is, in my opinion, often very, very harmful to the cause that police are supposed police to Police unions aren't about worker rights. Yeah. It's about worker, it's about police power and police Avoiding accountability. Off. Exactly, yeah. getting off. And, but we also have to recognize how, um, th that the next level up is a real problem here in, in, in Cleveland, in Cuyahoga County, all throughout the state, all throughout the country, is at the prosecutorial level you know the way that um the whole system is sort of approaches uh incarceration and 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 the the fact that prosecutors can can push people through this mill the way they do so often making mistakes so often pushing forward to raise the their own stats so to speak and when they get it wrong, they never face consequences for it. You know, I mean, that's that's the next level of accountability we, we need to talk about more is prosecutorial accountability because it's one thing for the police officer in an arrest to go cross over a line and abuse someone and we need to hold that accountable. But the type of abuse prosecutors put people through that <laughs> is a lot more deliberate, stretched out, long and ultimately damaging. So I want to give some numbers to you since you brought up prosecutors. And uh, so I just wanted to give this, these numbers to you. In 2021, I mean in uh, 2020, you had uh, internal affairs investigate 133 investigations. They were um, of those 133 investigations that Internal Affairs uh, investigated. Only nine were investigated by the city, and only 16 were investigated by the county. Or so, in other words, city court, which is misdemeanor, county is felony court. So what's that? Do you think Internal Affairs does frivolous cases that, that that they refer frivolous cases to the prosecutor's office? 
No. So that, you know, just when we bring up prosecutors, like, they're a real big part of this problem because they don't want to hold officers accountable. You know, and this is something that's not getting better up under this so-called reform. It's actually getting worse because I'm just looking at, you know, the numbers. Um, they had, you know, um, less instances where they referred uh um, prosecution of officers to the prosecutor's office and yet, you know, and they were smaller numbers. It was 21, a total of 21 in 2017. Here it is, 2020, 16, but remember, it was a larger number. So 160 back in 2017 and actually I said 133, that was 133 that were from that year, but holdovers from before and some other instances that were uh, never uh, actually, um, they were never investigated by internal affairs, but were brought to the attention of the prosecutor's office. 232. 232. That was in 2020. So... You know, I'm saying all these instances just to kind of show you just how they are. Um, the prosecutors play, as you stated, play a big part in this. But it's more than just, you know, where we tra traditionally head at. We need to really be looking at uh, basically just the refusal to prosecute officers when they do things like breaking their wife's nose. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And we see that get and and the guys a former. Uh, mixed martial arts uh, fighter, which means his hands are quote unquote registered weapons. Mm -hmm. Like you hit anybody, it's an automatic felony. How does this person that's held to a higher standard for multiple reasons? Because he's a professional fighter and because he is a law enforcement officer, how does this person get that reduced down to a misdemeanor? There's a reluctance to really prosecute or do anything to law enforcement um, on the part of prosecutors, and I can't understand why. Or maybe I can, but, you know. Well, there's that, it's a symbiotic relationship that seems to, it needs to be severed. Yeah, that starts with not allowing law enforcement uh, or their, uh, their unions and mm -hmm. so forth to be able to make campaign contributions, to do endorsements and so forth for candidates, that'll help take away some of their power. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the, um, <clears throat> the, the, the fight that you're in, where do you wish more, you could get more people to pitch in? Where do you think if, like, you know, you could get more people's heads to turn and look at a specific area and focus on that, what would that be? Where's the best place that you would, you would want to tell people to put their frustration and their anger if they're, they're in the area? Mm. That's hard because we, we, we're impacted by so much within our community. Um, you know, drug addiction, homelessness, um, Lack of access to proper education, lack of access to housing, home ownership. Um, these are things that create the issues within the community that we see. Everyone want to talk the crime is up, crime this, crime that. Well, of course, because people are suffering within their communities. They don't have access to proper food. Um, Cleveland has a lot of food deserts. Um, you know, so being able to provide folks with the immediate needs to be able to sustain a quality of life that most of our suburbanite communities experience. Um, they aren't over, they're not over-policed. We are very over-policed. Um, and they think that policing will solve everything. And that's not, that's not the case. We need, we need to actually address the underlying issues that has created the situations within the communities that we see. Um, and I think that would be a start. Um, and then bringing folks within the community that are directly impacted to the table to be able to 
draft resolutions and policy changes and, and things like that that they see improving their community, yeah. giving them the voice and the power to be able to make those changes. I'm with her. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was waiting to see like if you if you were, you were like, yeah, and I got something to drop. <laughs> um, so as you know, I I pointed out in the beginning, you guys BLM Cleveland is its own homegrown thing, mm-hmm. and when people donate to BLM Cleveland, what happens with that money? So it's it's being pushed back into the community. Um, we 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 help those clients that call upon us for assistance, um, whether it's helping somebody pay their rent or whether it's helping someone with a, a payment to for utilities or groceries. Groceries, yeah. Um, it goes back into the community, and we're we're very adamant about that, making sure that we are helping those who are in need directly impacted um there's so much bureaucratic tape on social services these or access to social service needs that people have to go through in order to apply for assistance um and most of the times the need is so overwhelming that they can't wait for this application to be processed or they can't wait for this supervisor to give clarification or approval like we had a young mom um, who needed you know some rental rent assistance and uh, wanted to get into a place in fact they they needed a place and you know the fact is is that you know when you have children you know do you want to keep your kids in this shelter, but you have to stay in this shelter a certain amount of time before you qualify for this housing? Mm-hmm. And she was lucky because she had children. But then, but, you know, so she would therefore get, you know, placed further ahead on the list. But it still wasn't time enough. It wasn't quick enough because you don't want to keep your kids in those types of situations. Absolutely not. Then there's the then there's the person or in our case or another young woman who we helped who didn't have children. So which meant that she was at the back of the list and would have to continue to stay in this shelter, would continue to have to either leave your things there and have it at risk of being, of being stolen or constantly lug your belongings to and from the shelter as you go to work and go to class. You know what I mean? And so it's like, you know, it's 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 the way that, you know, um, a lot of these services are really failing these people. And then you have organizations like ours trying to fill the cracks. Mm-hmm. And that's all we try to do. We can't help everybody in that way, but we just help, you know, who we can when we come across them. If we're able to, you know, if we've got the funds, right. because, you know, we're here in an office and we have to be in this office to be able to have meetings, to be able to. Um, come together and do the, you know, write the policy. We have to have this location, you know, and 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 other, and I hate to get into this part of it, but it's that to have that air of legitimacy. The folks who have been working with us as of late, I believe that it has a direct connection since we've got a brick and mortar location that we rent that we are inside of, because now it's like, oh, they've got a. They've got a legit location, so therefore they view us as being legit. And so if us paying rent empowers us to now be able to contribute, to really contribute to policy in the city and around the county, you know what I mean? To be able to give some change-making contributions, it's money well spent. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because we, we hear the pushback from the city about outside influencers and outside agitators and things like that um which is really ridiculous um because the families you know the people in the community have been advocating for change they have been advocating for reform they have been advocating for policies to hold folks accountable and they haven't gotten it um and for folks to say well these are outside influencers no, these are Cleveland residents. These are Cleveland voters. Let's let's, are, let's not leave it vague. Let's let's yeah. you say folks. It's it's Mayor Frank Jackson this week referred to 
three of the women we talked about, and yourself included, Samaria right. Rice, Brenda Bickerstaff, and Alicia Kirkman, um, all, all who have been um, out there in the front um, advocating for issue 24. And I just realized we, we, we've, I, I went right into like issue 24, assuming everybody listening to this knows what it is. It's a community oversight amendment to our city charter, and it's got the police running scared. And Frank Jackson is a big ally to the police. And he went on a podcast and, and called the, the advocates for issue 24 tragedy pimps who are exploiting, um, you know, an actual problem for their own, quote, agenda. Mm-hmm. Which is, I guess, <laughs> pimp side, you know, using a tragedy for their agenda. Yeah, the agenda is to make sure that tragedy doesn't happen, doesn't again. happen again. They're not out there trying to, using the deaths of their family and uh, to sell Amway or right, convince right. people to, 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 to believe in flat earthism exactly this is directly tied to the tragedy and i cannot believe he said that i mean we were taken aback we were so like it was just unbelievable that a city official elected official would use such distasteful words to um describe families that have been impacted by his failures his failures of accountability, his failures to hold folks accountable for their actions, his failures to actually implement changes of police reform. So to hear him, you know, lash out and call them names, it, it, it was very belittling, very distasteful and disrespectful. Um, you know, the fam- they demanded in the public apology, which I don't think they're going to get from him. Um, but knowing that, you know, the past 16 years there have been several tragedies and atrocities on his watch um one being the murder of 11 women on imperial avenue um also the the kidnapping of three women held prisoner for 10 years this is on his watch these are also systemic failures of the cleveland police department those women that were held captive for 10 years, they weren't rescued by police. It was a black man that rescued them. And had it not been for him being present at that moment, then women probably would be dead right now. Or may possibly worse, alive. You know, Still going through t- torture. Right. Um, yeah, and that gets to, I think, what they, you know, we were say, saying about was revelatory about the police commission mm-hmm. or, uh, the history presentation when they say like crime has just always been there and right. doesn't seem to be affected by police mm-hmm. and how much you know when you look at the numbers of how much crime police actually solve or deter compared to the amount of of, of pain and punishment mm-hmm. they dole out right um, I, I've started to you know there's there's been the rolling discussion of defund the police and you know, on on the side of pe- on the police re- people who are pro police reform, mm-hmm. not reflexively pro police. Um, there's the discussion of is that uh, an appropriate slogan or you know I'm not that far or whatever. But I think if people aren't there with saying defund the police, radically reimagine the police. Mm-hmm. At the very least, I I am someone who believes that we need to do that. And it aligns me with, yeah, we need to abolish what police are because looking at the history, Absolutely. it's been broken for a long time. Long time. I, I think on an objective level, mm-hmm. if you're really going to look mm-hmm. at the history. And so people, people need to understand that like you and I, or if we're police abolitionists, we want murders solved. Right. We want rapes solved. We want abusive people to be kept away from the people they're abusing. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that's not happening with what we have right now mm-hmm. to the degree that it actually protects us. Nobody's saying we don't need any sort of like dealing with what crime is mm-hmm. in the human condition, of mm-hmm. course. But abolishing the police, defund the police, if you need to turn it into that, radically reimagine what they are. We And we definitely need to reimagine what community policing looks like especially within the black community because history has taught us and and we know for a fact within in our history 
the police to us were the slave catchers. Those were the folks who the sheriffs, the deputies, the 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 mayors back in the day who would go and retrieve the property of slave owners, which were slaves. Um, and once they were freed, bring them into the carceral system, uh, uh, a.k.a. the new right? slavery. The new slavery, exactly. So and then even through the eras of Jim Crow, how they maintained those, you know, those, um, those policies. We know that policing in black communities looks different from policing in white communities. And that's just the fact. We know that. Um, and then to hear, you know, we definitely need to take a second look at the ways in which we, we, we do policing in America, period. Because policing, they don't, they're, they're not crime prevention. They're crime solving. And that's the reality of, of, of that profession. They show up after after a crime has been committed. Not right before. It's they're called after. And that's that's crime solving. That's not crime prevention. They're that was there a to take a report. Thing. In the report they said that wasn't even initially when detective work, they're like, Oh, our guys can't do that. That's scientific. Right? Yeah. So it's like we need to take a look at what policing in America looks like. And that's, they're not prime, uh, as I said, they're not crime solving. They're not crime prevention, they're crime solving. And we need to actually look at programs, programming, and put those things within the community that actually, you know, help our youth. They don't have, they don't have resources. They don't have after-school activities that they can go to. So when they get out of school, they hanging out. Give them something to do. Give them something to do. You're, you're closing down, like we're closing down recreation centers and things like that. The pandemic hit. They didn't have access to broadband to go to school. Half of them are behind on schoolwork. Like, let's address the real issues. And police aren't, they're, they're not prevention. They're solving, and that's it. So, uh, yeah, I was just opening the door talking about, you know, people's problems with defund and what it means and, like, however you – whatever you need to call it. Like, lately, I just think maybe maybe more people are comfortable with radically reimagining if you don't like taking their money away, but that's the <laughs> same thing. Shift the whole budget around. Strip it, strip it out of all, all the things that have to do with – Farming people into the carceral mm -hmm. system, and then how are you, how do you get police departments to do that? Though that comes from above them, it, it, and really people shouldn't be opposed to that concept, you know, because it's real simple. Absolutely. And folks might get tired of of us always bringing this up, but you have to look at the origin origins of policing. Mm -hmm. Origins of policing start with retrieving chattel property, slaves. And so, and, 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 and they go into, and after the so-called emancipation, their job was to pretty much help convert um, a prison industrial complex, a prison system, um, or a convict lease system that was 85% white, and they changed it over and it became 95% black. That was their responsibility, so that these same people that got away from this plantation now go back and work for the same plantation and slave owners. And so we, they are the enforcers of Jim Crow, mm -hmm. of segregation. This is, they are the protectors of property. That's always what they've been about. So when you understand that and the, just the negative aspects of what they are, mm -hmm. what is the problem with saying, you know what, we don't want them to be that anymore. And they'll say, and so I think it's a contradiction. It's, it's, it's hilarious when I hear folks talk about just the honorable tradition in policing. I ask them this. If the KKK starts giving out toys, balloons, life-saving equipment to uh, minority orphan organizations, does that now make them a good organization? Absolutely. How do you expect me 
to get past their history mm-hmm. because when we're talking about either organ like the law enforcement or the KKK, they have a troubled past. I cannot get past their past. So for you to try to shove them down my throat that like they're now good, I'm sorry. There's no way I'm ever going to look at the KKK as being good. There's no way I'm ever going to look at police as being good. So we need to reshape it and so that what comes out at the end of all this is not going to be policing as we know it. It's going to be something else. Fuck it. Let's go back to being them being peace officers. Because right now, the only time you ever hear mention of a peace officer is when peace officer is when they're dead. A peace officer's memorial. Well, and that was an interesting thing. Mariah told me was that they actually the law was changed at some point where all, they're never referred to as police officers in the state law. They're only referred to as peace officers. Um, and as you said, that's what they should be. Um, but is there anything you want to leave um, the listener with as far as where, where, where the fight is going and what, what you'll be doing going forward from here? Wow. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's like, it's just like we, we find ourselves, you know, it's sort of like the, uh, that uh, story about the kid at the dike, you know, where, you know, there's a hole here and he <laughs> sticks his finger. It's like we're running out of fingers and toes, but, you know, there's no one part that's more important than the other. And so really for us, when you talk about where we're at, I mean, right now, folks are working on, of course, contributing, you know, life saving policy and legislative, you know, recommendations Mm -hmm. uh, contributing to that. Uh, Folks are contributing to, um, you know, think tanks and just basically being uh, consultants for any and every organization or politician that will have us because we know that when we're not when we don't have a seat at those tables when we're not able to contribute we always notice important things missing you know Mm -hmm. because we're not disconnected from the community we're in fact immersed into the community and so we want to make that perspective known so I mean we're everywhere you know what I mean we're we're everywhere that we can be Mm -hmm. where we're invited or where we're able to force ourselves into and uh so you know that's where we're at if it's going to benefit you know our community if it's going to make us safer if it's going to make things better for us all you know we're there or we're fighting to get there Mm -hmm. I, i still you know definitely there's we're still doing a lot of work around bail reform and criminal justice reform and things like that uh Educating the community, a lot of community um, education and community engagements, um, you know, getting out there, talking with the people, um, those who are directly impacted by the policies that are created, um, you know, actually bringing their suggestions and and recommendations and things and concerns to the table, Um, because most of what I've been hearing from the residents, some of them don't even know their elected official. Some don't even know who they are. Um, haven't seen them, don't know what they do. Um, so, you know, continuously educating the community around the importance of um, getting out the vote, the importance of, you know, having that seat at the table, being that concerned voice and expressing those concerns. Um, and, you know, ultimately creating... Um, a, a dialogue where we'll be able to actually have folks, you know, on ho- a weekly basis, have conversations around the current issues that we're facing within our communities. Um, I think that's important because, you know, oftentimes, you know, these conversations go under the radar, and a lot of people don't know what's going on in, the, in their city, but they're paying taxes. Um, so we want them to be educated about the things that are happening within our city and be active be active well I really appreciate that and I I have gone into the work of journalism really with a posture towards like I need to learn mm-hmm. and you have been excellent uh, teachers just the kind of teaching where I'm just watching what you do what you talk about 
and I have the same uh, approach that I feel like needs to happen as education mm -hmm. on a certain level because what I have learned in the last year uh, about the deeper history of police as a general national phenomenon but also here in this state you talk about the KKK mm -hmm. and police there's a li overlap of that mm -hmm. in this Absolutely. region in northern Ohio and yes. there's a legacy to that mm -hmm. and that's why I will find it disturbing when I hear police chiefs like Scott Gardner in Euclid talk about how he's third generation police wow wow so you probably heard some really awful stories from grandpa you know the way that police were like let me let me tell you what the job really like all the legacy of that is here mm. and the familial aspect and let's not forget the mob there's with with the you know that was mentioned in the hundred years of reform is the effect that prohibition had with the mob setting up their bootlegging route passing through here and all of this has never really fully been uprooted and as you've said police is as a concept have never been truly examined in the modern mindset i think until now it's finally starting to puncture more of the popular mindset and i think that's because of the work people like you are doing and i applaud you for it and i thank, thank you, you for letting me into your offices and letting me into your circle of trust and let's go do the work absolutely sounds good thank, thank you. you thank you